3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, November 30th, 2010, Pulmonary Diffusion and Altitude. All right, so let's get caught up. Um, I have graded and updated on ULEARN quiz three and four and the podcasts from the week before Thanksgiving, so that's on there. The Richard. That you'll have to call the help desk. I don't. I don't. I just upload them to my site. Uh, um, don't know what's going on there. So when you go to iTunes U, you can't get to my class. That's. That's those guys. I don't. I don't. I don't know what's up with that. Okay. iTunes U. Okay. Um, I say the exact same things every semester. No. <laughs> uh, it's the only thing I can say is it should be on there. I actually had trouble at the very beginning of the semester because that same thing was happening. I was trying to log on to you know to the course for this semester. And it wasn't on there. It kept sending me to the last semester or last year. Um, I did, what's today? Yesterday, I was able to get on the site and uploaded the podcast for the last two lectures. So I was able to get to it. So you might try it again if you haven't tried it in a couple of days. And if you still can't, just call the help desk. Um, so I'm not sure what's going on. I haven't tried it since yesterday morning, though. You got to it? Okay. I think you just have to go to like Google There's like a page within Georgia State's website where you have to put like Georgia State iTunes or whatever, and you have to throw in your like student ID name and password, and then it will kick you to like an updated version of your thing. Because I was going to the 2009 section. If you go. If you go to the main page and you go to, I think it's popular links, yeah, go right down here to Georgia State on iTunes U, okay, and then that, that's where you log in, okay, so that should get you to it, okay, so there is a direct link to Georgia State iTunes U, so try that, and if that doesn't work, let me know, we'll try to figure it out. Um... All right, we got today and Thursday classes in uh, lab on Friday. Um, in lab on Friday, you will have your exams available to you. Uh, exam number two to look over. I'm not quite finished yet, so I don't have the total scores, but I will be done by Friday. So you can look at your grade and look at the uh, and have questions answered about the second exam. You can also have access to your first exam to look over in preparation for studying for the final. Okay. Um, you will not be able to keep those, but you can look at them in the lab and then turn them back in when you're done. Um, we will have quiz number five in here on Thursday. Usual drill with all the other quizzes, same thing. I'll hand it out beginning of class. Uh, uh, we'll take it in class. It will focus mostly on the pulmonary system. Okay. Um, I haven't got it. Uh, I'll, I'll send an email when I get it available. 
There will be an extra credit quiz available to you on ULEARN. It is, and it does not have the problems that that other quiz had on ULEARN. We've done it before and it's worked fine. Um, it is an opportunity for you to go in and answer some questions for us. And uh, if you successfully complete the quiz, you will have uh, 10 points added to your point total. Um, is, it, is it live? What's that? It won't give you a grade. It just, if you, if you complete, I must have set it up beginning of the semester then. So yeah, I guess it's live. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, I guess I put the release dates on it and I think I've got it available until the end of next week or something like that. So yeah, the day before the final, I guess the finals the 14th. Yeah. Um, so you've got some time to, uh, you got two weeks, I guess, from today to, to complete it. Won't take you long. Um, so that'll just be points added to your total number of points. Okay. Um, we're just going to do away with article number three. <laughs> in 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 the in the spirit of not giving you your money's worth, we'll uh, we'll just we'll just uh, forget article number three, um, and so the total points for the semester will be like 480 instead of 500. Okay. Um, question. Uh, if I get to it. If, uh, based on the schedule, I should be able to get through diffusion and most, if not all, of altitude today, which will leave me with performance, which doesn't take that long, on Thursday. Uh, and, if, and if that goes, then I'll be able to talk about female athlete triad, in which case, yes, it will be on the final. If I don't talk about it, it won't be. So. Pardon? Have I finished grading Article 2? Not yet. That's also in my stack, huge stack of things to grade. So that will also be done this week. So. Not exam 2. Pardon? Also exam 2. Exam 2? Yeah, it'll be done Friday. You can get, you'll get it back on Friday. Uh, what else? The final exam. Let me talk about that for a second before I forget. We, we'll talk about more on Thursday. The final exam is different than the other two exams. It has no short answer discussion questions, writing on the exam, okay? You've already demonstrated your ability to do that on the first two exams, so the final is exactly 100 questions, uh, multiple choice, true, false, matching, etc. cetera. Um, it is answered entirely on the computer score sheet, okay? So, is it, is it cumulative? Yes, it is most definitely cumulative. Uh, about 20% of the exam, I haven't figured it out exactly yet, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 questions will be on this most recent material, the pulmonary system, uh, altitude, uh, female athlete triad if we get to it, okay, so there'll be, you know, roughly 20 questions or so specifically on that. The rest of it will be cumulative, uh, focusing on major concepts and ideas. Uh, from the semester, okay. Uh, I would encourage you to use your two exams to study, use your quizzes to study, use your uh, study objectives that came along with your your syllabus, your the powerpoints that are available to you, etc. Okay. Any other questions about the final? 
So is uh, this week's lab not much of a lab? Is this week's lab not much of a lab? Um, it's a decent lab. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's similar to the VO2 max lab in that we do the same sort of thing, do a kind of a mac, uh, uh, an incremental maximal effort test, except we're looking at something different. We're looking at that ventilation threshold rather than maximal oxygen consumption. So it's, it's similar. It's something that you're used to. It won't be, it won't be anything radically new or different for you. So it shouldn't be too hard. Pardon? I think it's one of the labs that you need to turn in, yeah. I'll, I'll check with uh, Ryan and Megan, but I'm pretty sure there's a write-up for that one. So. Um, is the final still the 14th at 10.45? Yes. Because it's set to the same exact day and time as Dr. Brandon's yeah. eval. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. They've had, I don't know why they can't seem to do this, but yeah, they've had <laughs> bunches of conflicts with exams. Um, I guess the thing to do... Can we take it doing our lab this Friday? Just no. Next Friday. If you have a defined conflict like that, just email me and we'll try to figure out a solution. The obvious solution is to schedule it for some people at another time. So... Um, Did Brandon change his? Oh, okay. Not inferring anything, but I would suggest maybe getting online and checking the university's actual exam schedule to make sure that that's not a conflict. I'll double check as well, but that's the test and measurements class, the 3550? Okay, I'll double check it as well. But, um, and I'll be here... Um, I'll be here all next week, you know, so if you have questions, uh, anything about the exam or you want some help with some of the material or stuff like that, just come by my office. I'll be in my office every day next week. If my door's shut, just knock on my door. I'm busily writing, um, but I'll be happy to stop and help you if you have questions or things about the final, okay? So, all right. All right, well, let's move on. We have been talking about the pulmonary system and its two major functional uh, components, ventilation and diffusion. Uh, we've, we've up until now been talking about ventilation, the ability to just move enough air in and out to make sure that we bring fresh air in uh, and, and oxygen into the body and that we get that, that breath out, uh, removing CO2. The next part of this, though, is that we've got to be able to get those oxygen molecules from the lungs, from those alveoli, into the body. And that means diffusing them across the um, alveolar wall, across the capillary wall, and into the blood. Okay, so that's our, that's our diffusion part. Okay, now... Number of factors affect diffusion. Some of these, most of these we've talked about already. The first one is tissue surface area. And these are proportional. More surface area, more diffusion. Are the lungs good diffusion organs? Yes. How so? How are they constructed to do that? 
large surface area, lots of small alveoli, which gives us lots of surface area, okay? So the lungs are constructed to be very good diffusion or gas exchange organs. Thickness of tissue. These are inversely proportional. The thicker the tissue, the less the diffusion. Thicker tissue, less diffusion. All right, how are the lungs constructed to uh, be good diffusion organs related to tissue thickness? Then, specifically, how and where? Okay, alveolar wall is essentially one cell thick, and capillary walls are one cell thick. Okay, and then what about their proximity to each other? They're close, there's very little, little interstitial tissue between them. Okay, so it's a very thin, very uh, tight connection. All right, distance. These are also inversely related. The greater the distance, the less diffusion. Okay, greater distance, less diffusion. How are lungs constructed to take advantage of this factor? Close. Close. Pulmonary capillaries are very narrow, okay, bringing the blood and those uh, blood cells very close to the alveolar wall. Okay, remember the picture of the, or the electron micrograph of lung tissue where those capillaries are so thin that the red blood cells are literally like lined up one behind another, squeezing through there, providing a very short distance for diffusion. Okay, diffusion coefficient of the gas. This is just an inherent property of individual gases. Um, the only thing of note here is that carbon dioxide has a much higher diffusion coefficient than does oxygen. That means as a natural property of that gas, it diffuses much more readily than oxygen does. Okay, and we'll, we'll see how that uh, is affected in a little bit. In order to get the diffusion of gas molecules from one place to another, you need to have a pressure gradient or a difference in pressure. Okay, if you have gas in two areas, and the pressure of that gas is the same, the net movement of molecules is going to be equal. Okay? If there is a pressure difference, then uh, there will be a net movement or diffusion of molecules from the area of high pressure to the area of low pressure. Okay? And we'll see how we get this uh, pressure difference in a moment. Now, if the gas we breathe was, uh, the air we breathe was made up of just a single gas, this would be easy. But it's not. It's made up of a variety of different gases. So we have to consider each individual gas in what is called partial pressures. Okay, partial pressures. The gas that we, the air that we breathe is made up predominantly of nitrogen. The next most uh, 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 largest amount of gas is oxygen. Uh, we also have carbon dioxide and some other gases in there as well. The total pressure of the air that we breathe is considered to be the barometric pressure. Okay, that's total pressure. This total pressure is made up of the sum of the pressures of each of the individual gases. That's why they're called partial pressures, because they make up a proportion of the total. And the amount of pressure of those individual gases is dependent upon how much or the percentage of that gas is of the total. Okay, so as an explanation, nitrogen makes up close to 80% of the air that we breathe. Okay, so it's 79.04% or the 
fractional component is 0.7904. If you have barometric pressure, total pressure, that's equal to 760, 79% of that is 600. So the partial pressure of nitrogen in the gas, in the air that we breathe, is about 600 millimeters of mercury. All right, we don't deal with nitrogen too much, even though it's the most uh, uh, predominant gas in the air that we breathe. We're mostly interested in oxygen and CO2. Uh, oxygen makes up close to 21% of the air that we breathe. And so if we multiply that by a uh, barometric pressure of 760, we get a partial pressure of oxygen of about 159. Okay, so 21%, close to 21% of 760 is 159. And then CO2 is a really, really small percentage of the air that we breathe. Um, and so that makes up a really negligible amount. Okay, now barometric pressure of 760 is usually measured at sea level. What kind of altitude above sea level are we here in Atlanta? Ballpark. 1,000 feet, roughly. 800 to 1,000 feet. Um, if you, one of the things that we do uh, with the metabolic cart is you, because we are considering these different gases, you have to put in the barometric pressure into that device. And so in lab on Friday, one of the things you can do is look at the barometric pressure that's entered because we're a little bit above sea level. Typically, our barometric pressure here is a little bit lower than 760. It's usually around 730 or 740, something like that. So you can uh, check that in lab on Friday. Okay, so these are our partial pressures of uh, oxygen, or of gases that make up the total uh, air that we breathe. All right, now, I just need to redraw this and do my own, because I don't like the way these are done. Um, Recognize that we don't get these just as a single alveolus, but for the simplicity of drawing it, I've just drawn one. Uh, they, they obviously come in, in, in large bunches. There's lots of alveoli, and we'll, we'll look at those in a minute. Um, when we breathe air in, this is our, this is our um, shorthand for partial pressure. Okay, P with the subscripted gas that we're looking at. Okay, so this P subscripted O2 stands for the partial pressure of oxygen. Right, so if we were at sea level and the air contains close to 21% oxygen, the PO2 of the air that we breathe in is about 159 millimeters of mercury. Okay, that's the, if you had a container of air, that's the amount of pressure that the oxygen molecules exert on the inside of this container. Okay, 159 millimeters of mercury. All right, so we inspire, we breathe this air in. What are two of the things we do to air as we breathe it in as it's on its way down to the alveolus? Heat it, Heat it and, humidify. and humidify it. When you humidify it, what you are doing is adding water vapor to it. Water vapor is a gas. So what's that going to do 
to the pressure of oxygen, if you've got a sample of air and you're adding another gas to it, what does that do to the partial pressure of the gases that are already in the air? The, the total pressure stays the same. Okay, so you're, you are, you've got this air, the total pressure of the gas stays the same, but now you've added another gas to the mixture. If the total pressure stays the same, what has to happen to the pressures of the other gases? They have to go down. They're diluted. Okay? So when we add water vapor to this air that we breathe in, it dilutes the partial pressure of those other gases. Okay? So by the time we get down into the alveolus, the partial pressure of oxygen is about 105. Okay? So we breathe that air in, we humidify it, and that causes the PO2 to drop. Still fairly high, but it, it drops. Okay, so that's the pressure of oxygen in the alveolus. Now, in the blood down here, we've got There's a couple of different ways of expressing how much oxygen there is in blood. Okay? And recognize that we can have oxygen either bound to hemoglobin in red blood cells, or we can have some oxygen dissolved in the plasma. Okay? For that oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma, it is expressed as a PO2. Under normal resting conditions, the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood that is flowing to the lungs is about 40. Okay, so the PO2 is about 40. So we've got a PO2 in the alveolus of 105, a PO2 in the blood of about 40. Do we have a partial pressure, a pressure difference or gradient? Yes, and it's fairly large. Okay, so oxygen molecules will want to move from an area of higher pressure to an area of lower pressure. So we will get diffusion. We will get diffusion of oxygen molecules from the alveolus into the pulmonary capillary. Such that by the time this blood flows out the other side and collects into pulmonary veins, the PO2 on this side is about 100. Okay, now this is a static image, but recognize this is a dynamic process. The entire time that this breath of air is in this alveolus, oxygen molecules are diffusing into the pulmonary capillary so that as the blood flows through this pulmonary capillary, the partial pressure of oxygen is going up and the partial pressure of oxygen in the alveolus is going down. Okay, because these oxygen molecules are moving from here into the blood. Okay, then you exhale, you blow this air out and you inhale and bring in a fresh air and that process starts all over again. Okay, um, we have such good diffusion ability, the lung is such a good diffusion organ that we get almost complete equilibration of the oxygen from the alveolus to the to the pulmonary capillary. Okay? Now, 
Um, PO2, partial pressure of oxygen, is a way of expressing the oxygen content in the plasma. How do we express the amount of oxygen that is bound to hemoglobin on the red blood cells? Is there a way to figure that out? Maybe oxygen hemoglobin saturation percentage. Okay, you remember that O2 hemoglobin saturation curve? And it's expressed as a percentage. So what this means is what percentage, you've got these binding sites, and you've got all these binding sites on hemoglobin in these red blood cells, what percentage of these binding sites have oxygen bound to them? Okay? And... Coming out this side over here, it is very typical that about 98% of hemoglobin binding sites on, on the red blood cells have oxygen molecules bound to them. Okay, Where, where do we carry most of our oxygen? Bound to hemoglobin or dissolved in the plasma? Hemoglobin. Bound to hemoglobin. Vast majority is bound to hemoglobin. Okay? And as these red blood cells come through these pulmonary capillaries, the saturation of oxygen on these hemoglobin binding sites is usually almost total. Okay? 96, 97, 98%. Okay? So two, two ways or two things to how we can look at the ability of oxygen molecules to diffuse from the alveolus into the pulmonary capillary. One is PO2, and it typically rises from about 40 up to about 100. And the second is oxygen hemoglobin saturation, which will go up to uh, about 98%. Okay? Now, so this is a, on this side over here, we've got a pulmonary artery. So this carries blood from the right ventricle to the lungs. So they break down into smaller and smaller pulmonary arteries and arterioles and then pulmonary capillaries. And then these pulmonary capillaries coalesce into pulmonary veins. And where do they go? Where? To the left ventricle, to the left atrium, left ventricle, okay, left atrium, left ventricle, then where? Aorta, and out through the, what do we call the circulation out to the total body? Systemic, Systemic circulation, okay? So, this comes back around. Okay, so we've got PO2 
of 100 and O2 hemoglobin saturation of 98%. So as the blood flows through arteries and small arteries and arterioles and then down to capillaries and it flows into tissues like muscle, we've got lower PO2 inside the muscle. Okay, so as this blood is flowing through this capillary network by these muscle cells, the PO2 inside these muscle cells is down around 25 or so. So do we have a pressure gradient from blood to muscle? And that will aid diffusion of oxygen molecules from blood into muscle. Okay? Um, where PO2 is low, if you go back to that oxygen hemoglobin saturation curve, which we'll look at the curve again in a minute, what kind of affinity is there uh, uh, of oxygen and hemoglobin in areas of the body where PO2 is high? What kind of affinity do we have for oxygen and hemoglobin in areas of the body where oxygen PO2 is high? That's a hint that it's not lower. <laughs> Higher. Okay. Where in the body where in the body do you have high PO2? In the lungs. Do you want high affinity for oxygen and hemoglobin in the lungs? Yes. As you move into areas of the body where PO2 is lower, what happens to the affinity of oxygen for hemoglobin? It decreases, it gets lower. Remember how the curve how the curve drops off? Okay? The affinity for oxygen and hemoglobin is lower. Is that an advantage here? Why do you want oxygen and hemoglobin affinity to be lower here? Well, there is there's a pressure difference, but if oxygen binds hemoglobin, or hemoglobin binds oxygen tightly here, they have high affinity for one another, what's not going to happen? Yeah, it's not going to let go and give the oxygen up, up to the muscle, right? Okay, so we've got two things here. We've got a pressure gradient that will help diffuse oxygen from the blood into the muscle. And in areas of the body where PO2 is low, the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen goes down. Okay, So if hemoglobin doesn't have as high affinity for oxygen, it will unbind. It'll, it'll dump, it'll get rid of the oxygen. And if it gets rid of the oxygen, it can then diffuse into the muscle. Okay, Does that make sense? You want to bind oxygen to hemoglobin in areas where oxygen is high, and you want to unbind it or dump it in areas where oxygen is low, so you can use it here. Okay? All right. So, if we have diffused oxygen into this muscle cell, and on this side we've got veins, what happens to O2, PO2, and O2 hemoglobin saturation coming out the other side? Is it still going to be 198? No, because you've given up oxygen to the cell, right? So it's going to drop. Okay, under normal resting conditions, PO2 will drop to about 40. 
O2 hemoglobin saturation will drop to about 75. 75%. O2 hemoglobin saturation is always expressed as a percentage. Okay? So, veins draining muscles will go back where? If we've, if we've got... If we've got veins that are draining muscle cells, where, where does that blood go? Back to the heart. What part of the heart? Right atrium, right ventricle, and then it goes where? Back here. Okay? So that PO2 that has now fallen back to 40 comes back around. So let me write this in here. PO2 is 40, O2, hemoglobin, saturation... Is about 75%. That circulates back around and comes back to the lungs. Right? Goes back to the pulmonary circulation where it this blood picks up oxygen and goes back to the systemic circulation. Okay? So that's our that's our diffusion and oxygen delivery pattern. It is this diffusion is governed by pressure differences, pressure gradients. Okay. Now, at rest, as you're just sitting here right now, you're really not using your muscles except for your, your writing arm uh, much. PO2 in, the, in muscle cells is about 25. If you start exercising, what do you think PO2 does inside the muscle cell if you start exercising? It goes down because you're going to use oxygen in oxidative phosphorylation and PO2 goes down. Okay, so... With exercise, depending on the intensity of the exercise, PO2 might fall as low as 4 or so millimeters of mercury. So what happens to the pressure gradient between blood and muscle for PO2, for O2, the pressure gradient for O2? It's now 4 or 5 instead of 25, and it's still 100 here. What does that do to the pressure gradient? It's bigger. What does that do for the diffusion of oxygen from blood into muscle? Bigger pressure gradient, more diffusion. Okay? Does that help you during exercise? Yeah. Greater oxygen delivery. Okay? And what do we say about extraction, our AVO2 difference back in the cardiovascular section? What happens to AVO2 difference or extraction as you exercise? Yeah, same, same content uh, on the arterial side, but much less oxygen on the venous side because you've extracted more, right? And that's one of the ways you do it is you get a bigger pressure difference, bigger pressure gradient that helps you move oxygen from the blood into the muscle. Okay, diffusion. So, uh, in the cardiopulmonary system, you've got important diffusion sites at two locations. One is in the lungs. The other is down at the muscle, as an example, where we need to get oxygen out of the blood and into the muscle. Okay? All right, let me clean this up a little bit.
Okay. When you start to exercise, not only does oxygen utilization at the muscle uh, increase, uh, what happens to ventilation? We increase. Do we breathe faster or take bigger breaths or both? Both. So our total minute ventilation goes up. So we start to, when we start to exercise and our minute ventilation increases, we ventilate more areas of the lung. Okay, so we bring in more total air and we inflate more areas of the lung. Uh, what do you suppose happens to pulmonary blood flow? Well, it increases. Um, cardiac output goes up when you exercise, right? And we typically measure that on the aortic side for systemic circulation, but the heart is a, is a dual pump. So as much as it's pumping out the left ventricle for the systemic circulation, it's basically pumping the same amount out the right ventricle for pulmonary circulation. So we're inflating more areas of the lung and we're increasing more total blood flow, so we increase our diffusion capacity to bring in more oxygen. Okay? Now, um, If diffusion were a problem, first of all, let's back up. Uh, is ventilation typically a limiting factor for most people with their exercise performance? No, no. no, it's not. We move enough air in and out, okay? So let's look at the other part of the equation, diffusion. If diffusion were to be a problem, let's say we were not able to diffuse oxygen molecules in fast enough when we were exercising, what signs might you see that would give you an indication that we're not diffusing fast enough? Part? RP? Mm, uh, I don't know. Increased uh, One might be because you're not getting enough oxygen in and you're probably not getting enough carbon dioxide out, that will probably be a stimulus that your ventilation will go up even higher. Okay? That's exactly right, and it's one of the things you see with pulmonary patients, uh, people with emphysema, even though they're sitting at rest, their ventilation is elevated because they have to move more air to get enough oxygen diffusion. Okay? What other heart rate? Yeah, heart rate would go up because your, your blood is not carrying enough oxygen, so you've got to increase heart rate and blood delivery because the blood doesn't have as much oxygen in it. What signs would you see specifically that would tell you that your blood doesn't have as much oxygen in it? Yeah, you'd experience fatigue. Color. Could be color, okay. Hemoglobin is a pigment, right? And when it has more oxygen bound to it, what color does it? Goes brighter, more red colored. And in fact, that's one of the technologies that is used to determine oxygen hemoglobin saturation percentage. Okay, there's a device that's called an oximeter.
and it has a little sensor device that either clips on the end of your finger or there are little sensors that you can put on your, your uh, temple. And what it does is it uh, uh, essentially shines a beam of light and measures the intensity of the color and more red color indicates a higher percentage of oxygen hemoglobin saturation. Okay, And so what happens is if this were a problem and we weren't diffusing enough oxygen in, one of the things that we would see over here is that oxygen hemoglobin saturation would fall. It wouldn't be 98, 99, 100%. It would start to go down. Okay, Oxygen hemoglobin saturation would fall. The other thing that you would see would be that PO2 would not be 100. PO2 would go down. Okay, If diffusion were not sufficient. And typically what happens, or typically this does not happen. For most healthy people, under most situations, this does not happen. Okay? So, bottom line, take home point here, for most people, diffusion is not a limiting factor for exercise capability. Okay? At, at VO2 max, at maximal exercise, even though you feel like you're gasping and you can't get enough air, you actually are moving enough air in and out. Ventilation's sufficient. Even though you feel fatigued, you are still getting a sufficient amount of oxygen diffusing from the lungs into the pulmonary capillary. And oxygen hemoglobin saturation stays high and PO2 stays high. Okay? Now there are some exceptions to this. We, we discussed some exceptions to the ventilation. What, what's an exception to the ventilation limitation? Asthma. Okay, Asthma or exercise-induced asthma might be a situation where somebody is ventilation limited. Okay, uh, There may be other pulmonary diseases where people might be uh, diffusion limited. Okay, COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease okay, might be a situation where people, they breathe enough air in, but they're not getting adequate diffusion. Okay? My grandfather was in ICU for two weeks last week, mm -hmm. the week before that, and I got to see like exactly what you're talking about because mm -hmm. he felt pneumonia while he was in the hospital. Yep. Yep. So pneumonia, um, as an example, what pneumonia does is it's sometimes referred to as wet lungs, you know, or whatever. You accumulate fluid. And so what happens with pneumonia is you actually start to ac accumulate a fluid layer in the lungs like this. So if you accumulate a fluid layer, what does that do to the thickness and the distance that these molecules have to travel? It increases it, which impedes or impairs diffusion. Okay? 
And so that's why pneumonia is a potentially fatal uh, uh, disease because you may be getting a perfectly sufficient amount of air in and out of your lungs, but the air that's in the alveolus, the oxygen molecules, not enough of them can diffuse across this barrier. Okay? Um, people that have emphysema, the chronic smokers that have developed emphysema, essentially what happens is they have a breakdown of lung tissue such that they don't have lots of small alveoli, they have larger big alveoli and that significantly reduces surface area. So in that case what happens is they don't have enough surface area to diffuse. Okay, So those are situations that where people might be diffusion limited. Um, in certain disease conditions, there's, there's another I'll talk about in a minute. Well, so what might they do about it? What did they do for your grandfather uh, when he was in ICU to help his breathing? Uh, they put him on a ventilator. They, okay, one is they put him on a ventilator, and um, that ventilator probably had a, an oxygen tank hooked up to it that increases the percentage of oxygen in the air that you breathe. Okay, so normally it's 21%. Okay, which when you multiply that by our barometric pressure gives us a certain PO2 of the air that we breathe in. In this case what these oxygen tanks do is they increase oxygen percentage sometimes to 26, 28 plus percent. So what happens it basically is that makes the PO2 in the alveolus go up. It gives you a bigger pressure gradient in an attempt to try to force more more oxygen molecules to diffuse across, bigger pressure gradient, bigger driving force for diffusion. Okay? And that's why they put people on uh, oxygen masks or supplemental oxygen, is it increases, it increases the PO2 in here to try to increase that pressure or, or driving gradient to get more oxygen molecules into the blood. Okay? Um, now, there, there is a, a small population of people, they seem to be very highly trained endurance athletes, okay, that have what's called um, exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia, okay, fancy name for they get so highly trained that at or near maximal exercise, uh, you actually start, they, they become diffusion limited. Uh, you see their O2 hemoglobin saturations fall. Okay? The thought is the thought is these folks get so highly cardiovascular trained that what happens is their pulmonary blood flow is so high that these red blood cells, this red blood cell or erythrocyte transit speed, these red blood cells fly through here so quickly that they don't have time to pick up all the oxygen molecules. Okay? That this pulmonary blood flow is so fast that you, that you miss oxygen molecules and you actually see O2 hemoglobin saturation fall on this side over here. So that's arterial hypoxemia, that's having, not having enough oxygen in the blood. Okay? Very small percentage of people, but it's, it's very real. These are athletes that you can hook them up to um, 
uh, an oxygen mask, do a max test, and their VO2 max goes up. Okay, because you're increasing this driving force for oxygen molecules that essentially abolishes this problem. Okay, now what about other athletes that uses oxygen masks? Like, uh, you know, football player runs, you know, 60, 70 yards for a touchdown, comes over the sideline, sits down, whoom, slaps a mask on. Does that help him recover and get back into the game quicker? Well, it depends. Under normal circumstances, if this happens in the Georgia Dome, at or close to sea level, that athlete is already 98 plus percent saturated, and by increasing the intake of uh, oxygen here, that's not going to help this much. Okay? So, in that case, it's probably not that helpful. In what NFL city might it be helpful? In Denver. Okay, there is a situation where people may be somewhat diffusion limited because of the altitude and the extra oxygen may actually help them uh, get their oxygen hemoglobin saturation back up. Okay, so I think for a lot of these athletes in that situation it may be more psychological. Uh, it's actually the same thing with uh, the external nasal dilators as uh, they're technically called. The little breathe right strips, okay? Um, basically, it's kind of like a spring-loaded you know, device that helps flare the nostrils out a little bit more. Research studies of ventilation show that those don't actually help increase maximal ventilation anymore. So it doesn't really seem to help from a performance standpoint of what we can measure of ventilation. Well, why do people use them? Yeah, they, yeah it basically helps... It helps, well, despite the appearance, they, they actually do expand those external nostrils a little bit, increasing the radius. And if you increase the radius, what happens to the resistance to airflow? It goes down. It's a little easier to breathe through your nose. So the perception is that breathing is easier. It actually doesn't affect overall ventilation that much, but it might be a perception of, of uh, less effort of airflow, okay, or resistance to airflow. Okay. All right. Sound reasonable? Let's see what I got on my. Go back and see what I got on my slide. All right. These are all just drawings from the book showing the, the same thing I was doing up here. All right. This is an electron micrograph, again, of lung tissue. And what we've got over here is like a pulmonary artery and a pulmonary arteriole. And then this is the fine capillary uh, network. And then here's pulmonary venules collecting into a pulmonary vein over here. And so what I've drawn real simply up here as an individual capillary and an individual alveolus, there's actually lots of uh, alveoli under here and all of these capillaries that flow across them. So essentially what's happening as blood flows through this capillary network, it is picking up oxygen so that when it goes out the other side, PO2 has gone up to 100 and O2 hemoglobin saturation has gone up to about 98%. Okay? Um, 
I'm not going to worry about it. Well, slight differences with CO2. Um, CO2 has a much higher diffusion coefficient. So one of the things that carbon dioxide will do is dissolve in water in plasma much more readily than oxygen will. So we can carry a higher percentage of carbon dioxide in the plasma, about 10% of our total CO2 as opposed to a very small percent of our oxygen. Uh, we do carry carbon dioxide bound to hemoglobin. And as you bind carbon dioxide to hemoglobin, guess what happens to hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen? It goes down. So at a muscle cell where CO2 is being produced and CO2 is diffusing out and binding to hemoglobin, hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen goes even lower, which means it gives up its oxygen to those muscle cells more easily. Okay? Uh, the majority of carbon dioxide we carry uh, buffered as bicarbonate. Um, and then when it gets back around to the lungs, we turn it back into CO2 and water, diffuse the CO2 into the alveolus, and out it goes. Um, the other thing, notable thing about carbon dioxide, is because of the higher diffusion gradient, or the higher diffusion coefficient, you don't need as big of a pressure difference for carbon dioxide to diffuse into the lungs and then to get rid of it, okay? You can get by with a fairly small uh, pressure gradient. All right, here's that oxygen hemoglobin saturation curve. So here's PO2, or partial pressure of oxygen. Here's oxygen hemoglobin saturation percentage. So again, think of this over here as the percentage of hemoglobin binding sites that have oxygen bound to them. Okay, percentage of hemoglobin binding sites that have oxygen bound to it. In areas of the body where PO2 is high, high affinity for oxygen and high binding percentage with oxygen. Okay? As we get into areas of the body where PO2 is low, the curve starts downward and there's a lower affinity and lower binding uh, uh, percentage with oxygen. Okay? So as blood moves from the lungs down to the tissues, hemoglobin loses some of its affinity for oxygen and is able to give it up better. When you exercise, PO2 in the muscle goes even lower and affinity drops even further down here, meaning hemoglobin will give up its oxygen much more easily. Okay. Two other things, well, a whole host of other things, but two I want to talk about. Um, again, why hemoglobin is such a uh, cool substance. There are at least two other things that can affect the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. And one is pH. Okay? Does the body's pH change when you exercise? Yes. yes. And it can cause this the characteristic of this curve to shift. And as we see here, Here's 7.4, that's the curve in the middle. That's about normal body pH. Okay? If you exercise, you become slightly more acidic and pH goes down. This curve to the right represents this lower pH right here. Okay? So it's caused the curve, here's, here's the normal curve, here's the curve where you're more acidic, 
it's caused this curve to shift to the right. Okay, Lower pH, curve shifts to the right. Now, let's see what kind of effect that has. Um, in areas of the body where, where PO2 is low, okay, 40. Under normal conditions, normal pH, the affinity for oxygen and hemoglobin results in about a 75% binding. But if the curve has shifted to the right and you have the same PO2, what happens to the binding? It drops to 60. Okay, so if pH drops, the curve shifts to the right, that means hemoglobin will give up its oxygen more readily. So what happens to pH when you exercise? It goes down. goes down. So what happens to hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen when pH is lower? goes down. What happens to hemoglobin's ability to give up oxygen to muscle cells when pH goes down? goes up. It's better. It gives up the oxygen more easily. Okay? The other thing that will affect this is temperature. Okay? Same thing. Middle curve is normal body temperature. If body temperature goes up, the curve shifts to the right. You get the exact same response. Curve shifts to the right, meaning at any level, okay, the affinity for hemoglobin and oxygen is now lower. What happens to body temperature when you exercise? It goes up. What happens to the oxygen hemoglobin curve when you exercise and your body temperature goes up? It shifts to the right. At any given level of PO2, what happens to the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen when this curve shifts to the right? The affinity goes down, which means hemoglobin will give up its oxygen more easily. Okay? So when you exercise, PO2 goes down, pH goes down, and temperature goes up. All of those things modify hemoglobin so it will give up oxygen more easily to the muscle. Okay? Cool stuff. I can tell. All right, skip, skip, skip. Here's our... Um, does diffusion limit performance? PO2 typically does not go down in most people. O2 hemoglobin saturation does not go down in most people. Here are two exceptions. Highly trained endurance athletes have this exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia, fast, fast red blood cells, and altitude may provide some kind of diffusion limitation. So let's talk about altitude. Lots of interest in the effects of altitude on human performance, uh, dating back uh, uh, at least a couple hundred years. Uh, probably initially because of people's interest in climbing high mountains. Okay, see a mountain, want to climb it, 
They find out that their performance, uh, their physical performance suffers the higher they go. Uh, and so physicians and scientists started to study the effects of high altitude on physical performance. This got a, a significantly ramped up interest uh, in the couple of years leading up to the 1968 Olympics, which were held in Mexico City. For the first time in the modern, well, the first time in the Olympic history, the, the, Olympic, the Summer Olympic Games were held in a city that was at a significant altitude. Mexico City is um, uh, uh, over 7,000 feet in altitude, so there were concerns about how this altitude might affect performance of these athletes. And it was kind of interesting because it did affect performance, but in different ways for different athletes. If you looked at athletes in speed sports or speed events, this is track and field, Here's men's 100 meters, got faster. And this is comparison with the previous Olympics, which were at sea level in Tokyo. So over a four-year period of time, you typically see athletes get faster, Olympic records go, uh, 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 get faster, etc. Men's 100 meter got faster. Men's 200 meter got faster. Men's 400 meter got faster. Men's 800 meter got faster. Women's 100 meter got faster. Women's 200 meter got faster, etc. Essentially, in almost all of the speed events, um, the athletes got faster, uh, including what was considered to be probably one of the uh, most significant single sports performances in all of track and field history, uh, Bob Beeman, in, a, in an event, the long jump, where the world record is typically broken by quarters of an inch, he, he broke the world record by almost two feet. Okay, Single jump, broke it by almost two feet. Um, The situation with speed with uh, speed events is that at altitude, uh, the air is less dense. It provides less air resistance, and so as you're moving faster and faster and faster, there's less air resistance, and so more of the energy can be uh, uh, exerted towards speed rather than overcoming the air resistance. So speed generally goes up. Uh, there's also, most of these events are powered by our anaerobic energy systems. So except for the recovery portion, there's, there's not much need for oxygen. Okay, So not having as much oxygen is not a problem for these athletes because they're, they're mostly anaerobic type events. All right, more aerobic or endurance oriented events, however, exactly the opposite, um, except for uh, one event. So well, the men's 1,500 meters actually did get faster, and we'll, I'll come back to that. Men's 3,000-meter steeplechase got slower. Uh, men's 5,000 meters uh, got slower. Men's 10,000-meter got slower. Men's marathon got eight minutes slower. Okay. Um, the men's 1,500 meters was an exception. The, the winning time was faster, won by a guy named Kip Kano uh, from uh, Kenya, who happened to be born and raised uh, and did the majority of, the, uh, of his training throughout his entire life at what altitude? 7, About 7,000 feet. Okay? So he was a high altitude native that also continued to train a lot at altitude and his performance uh, uh, was, was fine at altitude. Okay, so these aerobic events, uh, endurance oriented events, suffered quite a bit. And in fact, if you measure um, VO2 max, as you go up in altitude, you see VO2 max go down in pretty much a linear type fashion. OK? 
Okay? You take the same person and over a couple of days you just you transport them to different altitudes and you recheck their VO2 max and their VO2 max goes down. This is not a factor of detraining, it's a factor of altitude. Um, if you go to the level of, of Mexico City, VO2 max is down about 12% over sea level. If you go to 10,000 feet, it's down about 20%. And if you go to 13,000 feet, it's down about a third. Okay? So your VO2 max is cut substantially the higher you go in altitude. And one of the things you can see over here is oxygen hemoglobin saturation, a little bit reduced, a lot reduced, a lot reduced. Okay? We're obviously not diffusing as much oxygen from the lungs into the blood, and so the oxygen hemoglobin saturation goes down a lot. If you don't have as much oxygen in your blood, you're trying to deliver this blood to those muscles, but there's not as much oxygen in it, so oxygen delivery to muscles is down, so VO2 max and performance is down. Okay. Now, um, and there's lots of different sporting events that, that uh, occur at altitude. Um, this is a, a shot of the Tour de France during one of the mountain stages going through the through the Alps. Um, and so what's going on? Essentially, the higher in altitude you go, the lower the barometric pressure. Okay. Now, recognize that the percentage of oxygen is the same at altitude. Okay. So you, you go up into the Alps and there still is about 21% of the air that you breathe is oxygen. You go to the, the top of Mount Everest. The percentage of air that you breathe, about 21% of it is oxygen still. What has changed so dramatically is the barometric pressure. Okay? So you're taking that same 21% by you're multiplying, you're multiplying it by a much smaller number. So the PO2, okay, the partial pressure of oxygen is what's so much lower at altitude. All right, well, let's take the ex extreme example. Uh, Mount Everest, it's the uh, highest point above sea level uh, on Earth. It's a little bit over 29,000 feet. And what's barometric pressure at sea level? 760. Barometric pressure at the top of Mount Everest is about 250. Okay? Less than uh, uh, about a third of what it is at sea level. If you remember alveolar PO2, the PO2 after you breathe air in and it gets down into the alveolus is typically about 105 at sea level. And what was PO2 in the venous blood or in the capillary blood? 40. About 40. When you go to the summit of Mount Everest, the PO2 in your alveolus is about 42. How big of a pressure gradient do you have to diffuse oxygen from the alveolus into your blood. Not much. And in fact, for a lot of time, for a long time, it was thought if mountaineers tried to climb Mount Everest without using supplemental oxygen, they would, they would literally suffocate and die. Um, that was proven incorrect. Um, in 1978, two Austrian climbers climbed Mount Everest without using supplemental oxygen. But ever since 1953, where the first two people climbed it successfully, uh, most people use those bottled oxygen canisters. 
Okay? And it's the same idea as with the people with pulmonary disease. It increased, you can't do much to change the partial pressure uh, or the barometric pressure on Mount Everest. So what they do is they manipulate the percentage of oxygen they breathe. They carried bottled oxygen to increase the percentage well above 21% to try to increase the diffusion uh, gradient. It's also not quite as bad as this is because if you don't have as much oxygen in your blood, your muscles are going to take more oxygen out and so the PO2 of the blood going into the pulmonary capillary is actually lower than 40. Okay, so there is a little bit of a bigger pressure gradient, but it's not very big. Okay, so this is a clear diffusion limitation. You're not, when you go to altitude, you're not diffusing enough oxygen molecules from your lungs into your blood. Ventilation is fine. You're moving air in and out just fine. The problem is having enough driving force to move oxygen molecules from the alveolus into the blood. Now, um, this is where those chemoreceptors that are sensitive to oxygen come into play. Because at rest, are you necessarily producing more CO2? If you're just sitting at rest, at altitude? You go to, you go to skiing at Breckenridge and you're, you're just sitting in the lodge having a, having a warm drink. Okay, so you're just sitting on the couch. Uh, you're not exercising, so are you producing more CO2? No, but your body senses a decline in O2 because of the diffusion limitation. So the chemoreceptors that are sensitive to oxygen kick in, and they tell your body to increase ventilation. So you're just sitting there at rest, but you will start to ventilate at a slightly higher rate. If you can't diffuse oxygen in, in as, uh, enough in this one breath, then the strategy is then to get more breaths in. Okay, So you hyperventilate a little bit. So that's one of your initial responses when you go to altitude um, is you get this hyperventilation. So if your ventilation goes up and you're not producing more CO2, you're going to be blowing off more carbon dioxide. Okay, So your body's CO2 levels actually go down. Um, that, that CO2 going down, you're, you're getting rid of excess carbon dioxide, not even excess, you're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide, which makes your body more alkaline or more basic. Okay, So then that, that alters your body's pH. And what your body will do then over time is to start excreting more bicarbonate. You're becoming too basic, too alkaline, so your kidneys start dumping bicarbonate into your urine to get rid of it to bring your pH back to normal. Okay? If any volume of blood does not have enough oxygen in it, the way to get more oxygen or the correct amount of oxygen to the tissues is to move more blood. Okay, and to move more blood, we see an increase in cardiac output and an increase in heart rates. Okay, so at rest and at any level of exercise activity, your heart rate's going to be higher and your cardiac output's going to be higher. Right? That's because any volume of blood does not have as much oxygen in it. So you've got to deliver more units of blood. Does that make sense? 
Um, because of the excess ventilation, we also tend to lose more fluid, so people tend to get dehydrated. Okay, so those are those are typical acute responses. Like, um, like at some of the ski resorts that mm -hmm. I've been to in the past, like the, you know in Colorado or mm -hmm. whatever, they'll give you like a humidifier. Mm -hmm. Why does that help with the altitude sickness? Or um, I'm not so sure it helps with altitude sickness uh, because there is there is some high altitude sickness and uh, a pulmonary edema and some other things. Um, one of the things that happens is cold air doesn't hold as much moisture. So when you breathe it in, you add more moisture to it. And as you breathe it out, you lose more uh, moisture. So you become dehydrated and it also dries out your nasal passages. So you, uh, particularly when you sleep, you have a humidifier that adds more water vapor so it doesn't dry out so much. Okay. Um, okay, and then over time, being having this chronic stimulus of low oxygen, that stimulates erythropoiesis. So your kidney cells sense low oxygen. They secrete erythropoietin. That stimulates... Uh, immature red blood cells in your bone marrow to go through the maturation process and your bone marrow pumps out more red blood cells. Okay, um, That increases your hemoglobin content. This is the case where you don't necessarily increase your plasma volume. You're just increasing the red blood cells so your hematocrit goes up. Okay. That increases your oxygen carrying capacity so you can carry more oxygen. Okay, so adaptations to uh, being at altitude. It, if you, if, and, and the altitude where this seems to start having an effect is um, above about five or 6,000 feet. You can usually go to you know, three, four, 5,000 feet without too much effect on your performance, but you get above 5,000 feet and uh, uh, performance suffers, but if you stay at that altitude, and particularly if you exercise at that altitude, you start seeing these physiological adaptations. Um, takes about two weeks. If you go to 7,000 feet or so, it takes about two weeks. And if you go at heights above that, you basically add another week for each thousand foot, uh, each thousand feet. Um, people who move to and live, reside, train at high altitude certainly. Uh, uh, experience these adaptations, but people who were born and raised in, in low altitudes that move to high altitudes probably never adapt to the same degree that people who were born and raised at high altitude or high altitude natives. Okay. Um, what we'll do on Thursday when we come back is talk about if you go to altitude and you train at altitude, does, does that help your performance? And the question, the answer may be yes or no, depending on where the subsequent performance is held. Okay? So we'll talk about that on Thursday.